may be seated. We've been working through the book of Colossians, and, and in our Bibles, the book of Colossians, like the other books of the Bible, are broken up into chapters, and, and that can be helpful for sure, but we need to remember that when these books were written, they weren't broken up that way. That is something that's been later added. And so when, when Paul wrote the book of Colossians, he didn't write a book with four chapters. He wrote a letter, one singular letter. And so we understand that verse 29 of chapter 1, where we ended last week, is obviously going to lead us right into verse 1 of chapter 2. We have that artificial barrier, but we need to understand that they are connected. Uh, last week, I remind you, we finished with these words, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So now with this in mind, with the thought of Paul speaking of his toil, of his struggling on behalf of the Colossians, let us read the words of Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. This is the inspired word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us now pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the body, which is the church. And pray that you would teach us on this morning about being knit together in love, what that looks like, what it should look like, and how we can better do that. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that the sermon title comes straight from uh, verse 2, knit together in love. And that's a description of what the church is supposed to be. We are to be knit together in love, it says. And I've been thinking about knitting this week, not thinking about doing knitting on my own, but just thinking about knitting as a process and things that are knit. And and I consider that we have a, a blanket at our home that was knit by a family member and given to us as a gift. That was a nice thing. We also have a little a little stocking cap that was was knit and given to us as a gift when Jack was born. And, and we, we have that still. It's this little tiny stocking cap knit and given to us. These gifts were given to us as a token of love, as a gift, kindness. And, and it occurred to me how often knitting is tied together with love. And so it is here. Just as a mother might knit a sweater for her child, out of her love for that child, we see here that God has knit us together with one another in love. And we see that as we are knit together in love, that will be a struggle 
but it will also be an encouragement. And finally, we see that it is a true union. First of all, I want to look at point one. Being knit together in love is a struggle. Paul says in verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Now the root of this word that he uses here to struggle, which again picks up on that verb that was used in verse 29 of chapter 1, is, is the same word that, that literally means to compete in the games. And so when it means compete in the games, we're not talking about you know, a friendly game of badminton. We're not talking about going out and playing a game of golf with your friends. We're not talking about playing at recess. What it's talking about is, is the struggle of an Olympian in training so that he might compete. I think of, of athletes who worked so hard. I think, I think of, of runners who train for years and years and years. I think of, of the wrestlers who, who I, I played basketball in high school. <laughs> and, and I was always amazed by the wrestlers. They were kind of crazy in my mind because we, we'd be, We'd be having our practice, and we'd leave to go out and get a drink of water, and these, these wrestlers would be running in the hallways, you know, and it would be like 80 degrees in the hallway, and they'd have on their sweats and everything, and, and, and they're doing these crazy things. They're training so hard because they had to get down to their weight, and they had to be strong and, and, and light and nimble and all these. You know, there's so much training that goes into it. It truly is a struggle. They have to work hard, and that is what Paul is talking about here. He says, I struggle it is a great struggle for you that I have. It's a struggle for Paul, he says, and, and it should be a struggle for us as well. It is hard work. It's not easy. If it is easy, then we're not doing what we should be. If we look at the scope of this struggle, he, he says that he's struggling not just for the churches that he's planted. You know, he has that vested interest in them. Not just for the churches that he's visited, but we remember that the church in Colossae is a church that he neither planted nor even had visited. Remember, Epaphras is the one who planted this church, and yet Paul says he is struggling for them, as well as the church in Laodicea, and even others who he has not ever seen face to face. Such is the nature of his struggle. He is willing to struggle for those who he has not even seen. It's a struggle of love. I think about the kind of love that my parents have for me. I think when I was in, in college, I came back for the summers. And, you know, in high school, you're kind of growing up and you're, you're learning pushing the limits a little bit maybe and then you go away to college and and you come back and and you're free now you're an adult now and 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 so the rules have kind of changed a little bit in your relationship they're still the parents they're still in charge but but there's a different kind of freedom that you've experienced that you've had and and so I I at times when I was in college back for the summer would stay out rather late with friends and, and you know what happened whenever I came home I don't think there was a single time that my mother was asleep. She was always awake. It didn't matter if I got back at midnight or at one or hypothetically if I had stayed out later than that. She still would have been up. Why? 
because she was concerned about me. It was a struggle. It was hard work because she loved me and so there was concern. Love begets concern and so if we are to love one another, we will be concerned for one another. That's hard work. It also involves forgiveness. There are times I did things and and said things that I ought not to have. And yet, my parents forgave me because they loved me. And so it is with us. If we love one another, we will forgive one another. Again, this is a struggle. It is not easy. It is not easy to forgive when you've been wronged. We want to hold on to that sometimes, don't we? We want to hold on to it and not forgive because, because it doesn't seem right. <clears throat> and yet, we'll find as we grow closer to one another, we'll become more willing to forgive. And the more we forgive, the more close we will grow to one another. And that's why God tells us <clears throat> in his word, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As you pray for people, even those people, especially those people that you don't want to, God works on your heart and draws you closer to them. It is hard to be angry at a person you are praying for. God will change our hearts and draw us into a closer union with one another. And that is one of the reasons why he calls us to pray for our enemies even. Paul says here that he is struggling for them, and surely one of the ways that he is struggling for them is in prayer. And he calls us to do the same. Remember back in chapter 1 of Colossians, when he spoke of, of how he prayed for them, he said, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul calls us to do the same in Romans 15. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers on my behalf. Strive with me. Work hard. This is not just a a rote prayer. He's saying he's not just kind of throw up a prayer. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about wrestling with God, pouring out our hearts before God. Have you striven like that? Have you worked hard? Has, have you struggled in prayer for your neighbors, for your fellow church members, even for your enemies? We have a prayer chain here. Far too few people are a member of that prayer chain. We have prayer before worship every Sunday morning in the library. Far too few people attend that prayer meeting. We want to be a church that is a body of prayer. We want to be a people of prayer. We want that to be an identifying mark of us. And yet, if I look at the evidence, I wonder if that is who we are. Now, that's not just me pointing at you. I point at myself as well, because there are times that I don't give the effort to prayer that I ought to. There are times that I don't make it the priority I ought to. All of us need to grow 
in our prayer lives. We need to realize the priority that it needs to have in our lives. And we need to struggle in prayer with and for one another. We need to do this out of love. Above all these, put on love, Paul says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so it is that being knit together is not only a struggle, it is also an encouragement. And that is a good thing. Note in verse 2 where Paul says that he does this, that their hearts may be encouraged. With the goal towards reaching all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. The very reason that Paul is willing to struggle for the Colossians and the Laodiceans and for you and for me is that we might reach this assurance, this understanding, this knowledge of this mystery of God. Now remember last week we talked about how Paul uses this term mystery 21 times in the New Testament. And when he speaks of a mystery, he's not talking about something that is unknown, but rather something that would have been left unknown had it not been revealed to us by God. And that person, that truth, is Christ Jesus, which we see right here in verse 2. He says the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Not just that Christ existed, not just that he was there, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he took on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, setting aside his glory and walking the proverbial mile in our shoes. And doing it without sin. And yet laying down his life on our account. Dying on the cross that we might have forgiveness. Giving us his righteousness. Taking on our penalty. So that we might know God. This is the mystery. This is the mystery. That Christ Jesus did this. And that God has made it known. Now some people outside of the church like to, like to think that they, they want to have spirituality without Jesus. But the word of God tells us in 1 John 2 that no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. True spirituality can only be found in Christ Jesus. But what Paul is more concerned about here it isn't so much those who are outside of the church. He's concerned about what's going on within the church. He's concerned with what people within the church are thinking. He's worried about the idea that is creeping into the church, that what they need is Jesus plus something else, that there's some other knowledge that's necessary. And the problem with this other knowledge is that it quickly subverts who Jesus was. It subverts the work of Christ. For if Jesus plus something is necessary, he no longer truly is the Christ. He no longer is the sufficient payment for our sins. And it ends up leading us to a point where we, we reach what Michael Horton has called a Christless Christianity. Where, where perhaps we have Jesus, 
who teaches us the things that we are supposed to do, who shows us how we are supposed to live, who maybe gives us a sense of fulfillment. But he's no longer our Savior, our Christ, our Messiah, no longer the one who died for our sins. And that reduces him to nothing but a moral guide, an example. And if we do that with Christ, then that reduces the church to nothing more than than a social club committed to good deeds. And far too often, I think we look at the church in this way, even within the church, we need to reject this. Certainly, we are about doing good deeds. We ought to. We we talked earlier about Oklahoma City and how we are trying to collect funds to help them out. And that's a good thing. And we ought to do these things. But primarily, what the church is about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for our sins and rose again. There are plenty of people who will do good deeds, but there is only one body on earth that will proclaim Christ as Savior. And that is the church. And so that is our duty. That is our responsibility to proclaim that message to one another and to others. And that is why the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, as Paul put it, are called riches in verse 2, and why the knowledge of Christ is called a treasure in verse 3. For apart from Jesus, every effort to know God is doomed to failure. And so we count understanding and knowledge as treasures. We guard them. We rejoice in them. But yet we must be careful. We must be careful not to deify them, not to idolize them, not to raise them to too high of a level. So there's a balance there that we need to find. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, sometimes those who have deep commitment to the truth develop a short-sightedness about the nature of truth. They assume that to live in the truth, as the New Testament urges us to do, is only a matter of right doctrine. But to live in the truth means more than having our theology right. It means embodying its implications in lives of graciousness and humility. And so it is that when Paul speaks here about knowledge as a treasure, he links it together with wisdom. Wisdom is the ability in concrete situations, one person said, to apply knowledge to the best advantage. Another definition of it goes as such. Biblical wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. I like that. God is altogether wise and Christ is wisdom personified. And so when those within a community who are most knowledgeable, who have the best understanding, are also those who have the most wisdom who show humility, who show gentleness, who show love, then, oh, is that community blessed. May we be such a community at Calvary Presbyterian Church. May our lives be marked not just by knowledge, but by wisdom, by humility, by love. For knowledge in and of itself puffs up But love builds up. Let us be a church that is building one another up. You see, the encouragement that Paul wants us to have comes not from being encouraged that we are smarter than the next guy, 
but rather an encouragement that comes in verse 4, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You see, Paul is saying he doesn't want you to be pulled away, set adrift by some argument that sounds good, but in reality is, is a false argument that will lead you astray. That is the purpose of having knowledge. It's so that you might stay on the right course, not so that you might puff your chest out and think you're special, but that you might know God. And we should all want this for each other. We should all encourage one another in this. We should all help one another to have this kind of knowledge, this kind of wisdom as well. For we are united with one another. And this is a true union. In verse 5 we see, Paul says, Though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. Often when we can't be with somebody, we, we use those kind of words, don't we? We say, well, I'll be with you in spirit next Tuesday. And what we mean by that at the best is, well, I'll be thinking about you. Or maybe, maybe even I'll, I'll be praying for you. That's usually what we mean when we say it, let's be honest. But what Paul is saying here is not just some cliche that's a throwaway type thing. For in the Bible, when we speak about being in spirit... What it's referring to is those things that are of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's not just saying, oh, I'm not going to be with you next Tuesday. No, what he's saying is, I truly will be with you. I will really be with you. Though physically separated from you, I will be together with you by virtue of our union with Christ Jesus, which comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Whenever we trust in Christ, whenever, whenever we come to a saving knowledge of Him, of Christ, God unites us with Christ by means of his spirit. And that is, that is how we are saved. That is how we have his righteousness because we are bound together with him. And his spirit is the means by which we are bound. And if I am bound to him by the Spirit, and you are bound to him by the Spirit, and the Colossians are bound to him by the Spirit, and Paul is bound to him by the Spirit, then we are all bound together by the Spirit. And so it is that he can say, I am with you in Spirit. For we are one body. One body, just like we read about before in the Unison Scripture reading. And it is foolishness for one part of the body to say, I have no need for the other part of the body, for the entire body is necessary. The entire body is united. And if one part of the body is injured, then the whole body is injured. And if one part of the body rejoices, then the whole body rejoices together. That is true fellowship, members of the same body. I... I ask you here today to consider, have you rejoiced with those who are in this church at their rejoicing? Not, not just the people that you are close friends with, the people that you would rejoice with, whether you were united with them or not. But, but people who you would otherwise have no relationship with. Have you rejoiced with their rejoicing? And have you mourned in the midst of their mourning? If not, then your membership in the church 
might be nothing more than a paper membership. Our hearts are tied together. We must suffer with one another and rejoice with one another, encourage one another, and be united together in every way. For this is what Christ has done. He has bound us together as one body. Now this is not a matter of human working. It's not just that you were united together when you took membership vows. No. You were united together by a work of Christ Jesus. It is said that blood is thicker than water and indeed it is. This is a relationship whereby we were bound together by blood. The blood of Christ Jesus shed for us on Calvary's cross. And we were knit together in love. See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we should be called children of God? And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For we are knit together in love, And it will be a struggle. And it will be an encouragement. And it is, by the grace of God, a true union. Let us live out that union in our lives to the glory of God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this union that you have given us, first with Christ Jesus, but secondarily with one another. Might it encourage us, might we be willing to struggle with and for one another, and might we be bound together in every way to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.